Hello, and welcome to Gay for Horror, uh, where I talk about horror movies in a very gay voice. Um, you know, I have, in my in my times, um, I often have felt that I have made good... <laughs> I have made good, uh, good friends with the sound that comes out of my face. Uh, uh, but I did a Q&A recently for a film festival, which is really fun. I had to watch that video back, and I know that you would think that this would have been evident because I have recorded my voice a lot lately, but, like, it is a very gay voice, so I feel like the title is appropriate. It's not false advertising. Uh, you, you will, if you listen to a show called Gay for Horror, you probably want someone to talk about horror with a very gay voice, so you're welcome. Um, I'm going to go this episode through um, on my letterboxed account for all the horror movies that I liked uh, in the month of October that are available either on streaming or on VOD um, and that you all might be interested in hearing about if you'd like someone to just state the available releases and give you some cliffs notes. So uh, I'm going to pull up my diary and start at the beginning of October. Overall, a great month, I think, I hope. Um, some division. Actually, you know, let me start by talking about one that is not... Uh, I didn't watch it in the month of October, and so it's not, um, it's not at this particular date range. But uh, it's one of my favorite movies I've seen all year, horror or otherwise. And it is not, um, it was released initially through the kind of virtual cinema, small independent theater program through a company called Kinston. And it was recently put, um, put on regular VOD. So if you go to any, whatever VOD service uh, you use, Amazon or Vudu or iTunes or pick one, um, YouTube, probably, I don't know, I haven't double-checked all of those. <laughs> it should be on most of them, um, and you can rent it or buy it, uh, and I think it's brilliant. It's a movie called The Wolf House, um, which is this incredibly haunting, nightmarish, stop-motion animation feature film that is kind of a... It is a propaganda film told from the perspective of a cult leader uh, as to why it is futile to leave the the group and it is inspired by it's inspired by general the general sensibility of fascist propaganda and kind of cultish propaganda um, but it is also loosely inspired in in sort of idea by um, a figure from Chile, uh, whose name was Paul Schaefer, who was a former Nazi who escaped to Chile, uh, and started a colony called Colonia Dignidad, which was, um, by every count I've heard, a nightmare, um, a nightmare institution, uh, and that fostered pedophilia and other grotesque behaviors. 
Um, and it did so under the, the guise of religion. I'm not a historian, so I hope that that's accurate, uh, but that's my understanding. And so in The Wolf House, the filmmakers create this version of like what this cult leader's vision of escape would look like. And basically it's these stop motion characters that are made out of paper mache and like also fluidly grafted onto the walls. They sort of, um, the film is a constant state in a constant of transformation and motion. And so the, the characters come into being from sort of like inanimate materials and then fuse into the walls of the house and move from kind of from object to object or from material to material. Um, and it is visually one of the most fascinating things I've ever watched. Um, apparently it was filmed over the course of many years, I think five years, uh, in mostly abandoned buildings. And according to what I read, the filmmakers shot it in a one-to-one -one ratio. So like everything that exists in the home was essentially constructed or painted in a in the size of the, the home. So to say that it was like to scale with the bit with a building, it's not stop motion, like Coraline, like they made miniatures. It's like they went to an abandoned building and like drew on the walls and did the stop motion story on the walls of the buildings. That's how I understand it. It's very upsetting. It's, it's very difficult. Uh, it is truly horrific and not in a playful sense, in a, like a very, very nightmarish sense. Uh, but it's one of the kind of best accounts of how I think psychologically all-consuming that type of ideology can be and how inescapable it can seem and how one could be coached to surrender to, uh, to a figure of power who presents that level of influence and control. Uh, I also think that there's this, like, there's something very queer to me about fluidity of being uh, and like fluidity of the body and I think the fact that the characters in the movie are consistently built and then destroyed and then rebuilt and then remade in all these different forms uh, there's something sort of like uh, interesting and transformative about that as well which I think makes it fascinating um, but I just can't recommend it enough it's like easily one of the greatest things I've seen all year uh, but it's, again, it's not a traditional horror film. It's just like a surrealist nightmare. Uh, and you, if you would like that experience, I think the, you know, it is technically expert and beautiful and wonderful and um, mesmerizing. Just so, so, so much. So unique visually to everything else I've ever seen. Uh, but it is not a, like, classic scare-based movie. It's like a true submersion in uh, dystopic nightmare so that's on vod if you'd like to check that out the wolf house which i think is exquisite um let me look okay so let me look at what i actually did watch in october okay um the first thing i want to talk about is oh this is good the first thing i want to talk about is vampires versus the bronx um vampires versus the bronx oh, no this is not the first thing you know i just did that whole thing this is the second thing <laughs> i failed math um 
The second thing I want to talk about is Vampires vs. the Bronx, which is on Netflix. It's streaming with Netflix, uh, in the U.S. at least. Uh, this is, like, the most delightful, um, really all-ages-worthy horror movie, I think, in a good way. Uh, it's about young characters, but it has a really fun sensibility, so I think uh, you can... Uh, it, it's a good movie. I've been sort of recommending it to people who want something to watch on, like, a Halloween family night situation. Uh, because I think it works for anyone, but also it's, like, relatively age-appropriate, which is rare for horror movies, and, and for them to not be, like, cloying. This is not cloying. Um, but basically, I would relate it to movies like Fright Night, where there's an air of mystery and macabre, but it's felt relatively tame. Uh, and also it's very much from the worldview of children. So basically it's young boys who are from the Bronx who are trying to save their corner bodega, which is going to be probably bought up by this mysterious real estate company called Murnau Real Estate, which is obviously a nod to FW Murnau, um, which is cute. And they basically think that the real estate is run by vampires. And they're trying to prove that this real estate agency that's buying up all of the real estate in their neighborhood is uh, run by vampires. And it's a pretty straightforward, but also I think totally important and really successful analogy about gentrification. So it's a largely black and Latino, Latino, Latinx community uh, in the Bronx that's being bought out by all of these gaunt white people. And they are sucking the life out of the community. And so they are in this case, literal vampires, but metaphorically vampiric in their nature. Uh, and it's it's slightly comedic, and it's not really scary. It's more sort of like Scooby-Doo spooky. Uh, so it is an all-ages movie. It is a very like low-stakes, fun, macabre movie if you want something in that vein. But it's really clever. It's really funny. It's full of great characters. It has, I think, a wonderful perspective uh, in terms of its kind of care and attention to the the you know the the characters of the the leading children who are given all of the sort of stakes and gravitas that they deserve and not belittled in any way or taken seriously uh and yeah ultimately it is about kind of protecting uh protecting uh communities um from 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 vampires both literal and metaphorical uh and it's wonderful and i highly recommend vampires versus the bronx Next thing that I watched that I liked, there's some I didn't like. Um, no, the next one I the next one I watched that I liked was Black Box, which is actually the first movie in the Blumhouse Welcome to Blumhouse HBO. No, Amazon. Gosh, Amazon series. I find this premise a little confusing. Um, but we're gonna go with it. So. Uh, Blumhouse has they, they have on Hulu they have a anthology movie series called In the Dark which is for some reason based around holidays and I've watched some of them uh, and I've and some of them have been okay but a lot of them that I've seen have been to be honest not great and also to be honest not uh, not of a quality where I believe there was ever a hope in the world that they ever would have been like theatrical releases, right? They had a sort of 
TV quality uh, in the sort of sense that almost doesn't make any sense anymore because television is so sophisticated and expensive. But you know what I mean by that? They had like a they really had like a sort of simplicity and a kind of um, a lot of movies that take place in one set, a lot of movies that have very small scale, right? Which can be brilliant, but in these in this cases in this case m- mostly not so. Uh, but then now they have Vanas has a new movie anthology series on Amazon, which seems like the same basic concept, which is called Welcome to Blumhouse. And this one seems to be trying to make movies that, and I don't don't know what the process for, I don't know if these are acquisitions that are being transitioned into digital releases. I don't know if these are movies that were made specifically for this purpose. I don't know if these were movies that Blumhouse made on a kind of low budget risk and they looked at them and said, we don't really care about this, we're gonna sell it to Amazon. I don't know. I imagine it's probably a mix of all of those. I imagine this is, because uh, this was in, this was conceived, I believe, prior to the shutdown of most theaters in the US. So my guess is it's sort of a pipeline for material that Blumhouse either acquires but thinks is not up to par or produces and thinks is not up to par um, or just stuff that, like, is not very commercial, maybe, or does, that they don't think there's an audience for. Of course, in this moment, it could become a pathway for a lot of films because there's not a lot of theatrical exhibition, but notably um, things like The Craft um, Legacy, which is a Blumhouse title, uh, was not included in this series. So there obviously is some sort of, like, hierarchy in distribution. Anyway... Uh, I didn't like most of the movies from the Welcome to Blumhouse series, unfortunately. Uh, I watched them all. I didn't like most of them, but I did like Black Box, which is the first one that they put out. And, uh, this is a really great sci-fi horror concept, um, starring Felicia Rashad as kind of a, uh, mysterious scientist, which I guess is a not very subtle way of saying that probably she will be up to no good. Uh, who's investigating uh, brainwaves, and she's working with a patient who has amnesia. Uh, And I can't say anything else pretty much about the plot, uh, but she's trying to recover his memories by putting him back into his memories. Uh, And when he's inside of his memories, he sees a figure who's chasing him in his memories. So it kind of is a sci-fi version of the last act of Insidious. If you remember the the final act of the original Insidious movie, the the premise is that he goes into the, the further and then he kind of walks through his own home again, but it's the further version of his home, which by the way, is a brilliant way to economic like how do you how do you send a character to hell for no money? You make hell look like the set you're already filming on. What a brilliant idea. Ah. Uh, and it's an, and it's a version of an ending to a ghost story I hadn't seen before. Anyway, that's a clever, and there's a clever fix. Uh, and, and this movie sort of revisits that, some of that premise, which is we kind of go back through these spaces in a sort of surreal, uh, that have this kind of surreal, haunted energy, but they're just the same virtual, you know, basically the same sets, but kind of imagined in as a memory version of that set. So some things are missing, faces are missing, some things are distorted, and it has a kind of 
surreal quality, which is really enjoyable. But also, I think it's a movie that shifts. I think the way the you know the concept of the movie is a bit there's an there is a, a setup, and obviously that conveys something about what's going to happen. But it, it it shifts a lot in terms of the tone and the almost the genre that it is. Uh, in a way that I, I found really enjoyable. Um, I think the reviews for it were average. I found it really above average. I thought it was really strong. I think the performances are really good. I think the... I like that it has an evolving structure. I like horror movies that are multiple genres. Um, earlier this year, I talked about... I, no, I talked about The Dark Red, which is a movie that I really liked which I think alters its genre a few times. And then last year I talked about ICU, which is another great movie that I really like that I think alters its genre several times. And I like that kind of evolving quality where it maybe starts as one thing and then becomes another. Even if that means that there's a bit of non sequitur, I kind of, I'm okay with that. I like when things transform into something else. So if you want to see a kind of, uh, not, not very totally straightforward horror movie, but something that is in the realm of like surreal sci-fi horror that has some uh, kind of surprises along the way. I think uh, Black Box is great. Uh, okay. Yes, I just can't. I can't recommend any of those other ones, though. I have to be honest. Okay. Um, the next thing is the biggest surprise for me in the year of 2020. Like, I did not go into this movie thinking I would love it. I went in thinking it might be okay, and I loved it so much. Uh, and it's a movie called Spontaneous. Uh, the director is Brian Duffield, who wrote the script for The Babysitter, the the, the McGee movie, The Babysitter, with um, Samara Weaving. And also, he wrote, I believe, wrote or co-wrote the script to Underwater, which came out early this year. Uh, and this is, he wrote and directed this one. And it is certainly in the realm of the macabre. It's not a classic horror movie, but it has scenes that I think are so good and so just like, in, in I just, I've watched so many movies that to watch a movie that puts things together in a way that is not what I've seen before it makes me so happy. And I think The Wolf House does that. I think. Black Box does that to some extent. This movie does that as well to some extent, where this movie is like a high school rom-com. Like, it's fully 10 Things I Hate About You, but if in the movie 10 Things I Hate About You, people started spontaneously combusting. Like, that... Like, I just can't express... Like, it, it is... It is a romantic comedy in the truest sense, and also it's about spontaneous combustion. And that combination of things is so brilliant to me. It's very funny. It's very, it's a little cutesy in the sort of rom-com department, but the, the performances are so good. Um, so good that I honestly just go with them. I just totally buy into them uh, completely. Uh, if it were just a straight romantic comedy, I would like it in and of itself. But the fact that it also has this, macabre kind of chaotic energy is for me a huge plus uh the leads are Catherine langford from 13 reasons why and is that what she's from yes yeah, i think yeah that's what she's from right she's she's the she's the girl who dies yeah i think that's who she is and then the, uh, and um charlie Plummer, 
who I know from all the money in the world of Ridley Scott movie, but if you told me he was in something like cooler for young people, I probably would believe that. I'm I'm not sure what he's known for, but uh, they're the two leads, and they're so good, and they actually, like, it's the most convincing teen rom-com I've seen in so long, and they're so charming in it. Uh, and also their friends are exploding. I just <laughs> need to make that clear. Uh, it's also just like, it's one of my favorite treatments of death in, in any in any media. Like, I just think, I mean, some of my favorite movies about death, Harold and Maude is a big one, or um, on TV, Six Feet Under is a big one. I would put this up with those in terms of, it's a movie about death. It's about the, it's about the randomness of experience in a world that is just chaotic um it manifests that in this you know in this premise that there's a bit of an, an epidemic with this senior class of, of teenagers where people are just exploding and no one knows why uh, but ultimately what it's about at its core is a very universal thing which is like anyone who makes it to any age has seen people has lost people uh and has or has seen people pass and wrestling with that in any sense is really difficult to understand um the randomness of it is very difficult to understand it's difficult to position yourself within a space that it has this kind of randomized violence um this obviously was made and probably written well before the current pandemic but it certainly speaks to an anxiety of the moment of feeling like there's just this like random thing that is picking people off that you have to aspire to not be part of the statistic of people who are affected by it, um, which is in a very anxiety inducing position, I think, to be in. Uh, and also one that's just, you know, the, the, just the randomness of all of it is, 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 is very horrific. And the movie, just takes that in in a, in the plainest simplest way and it's funny and it's charming and it's there's a couple of scenes that are genuinely upsetting and scary and spontaneous combustion is not something i've seen done a lot in horror movies um also the spontaneous combustion there's a there's at least one or more scenes that feel as though the the analogy that maybe was happening in the script version was uh, mass shootings, which is in and of itself um, an important analogy that is weirdly, uh, you know, for high schoolers, probably a bit alleviated by the fact that in-person school isn't happening in most places in the U.S. But the idea of, like, your, cl your classroom can just erupt into violence and that that's the thing you have to be prepared for and why it's happening to you and to in, in your space um and there's a couple of scenes that really evoke that feeling of people are just dying around you and you're running from it and you don't quite know what's happening and uh, i think mass shooting was probably the initial drive of that kind of visual those visual choices but in the time of pandemic it's even there's like this extra other layer um of kind of wrestling with mortality that's it's and also its attitude is very it's just good it's really good it, it sort of comes to this rather rollicking conclusion that i feel like is was an antidote to a lot of uh personal feelings of dismay uh so it really kind of ramps up into something uh, 
almost motivational in a in a in a in a strange way. It's so good. I just can't recommend it. Spontaneous. Um, some of these. This is actually. This is a pretty good month. Some of these are really, really fucking good. Spontaneous is really good. The Wolf House is perfect. Um, Black Box is great. Okay, here's another one. Uh, the Wolf of Snow Hollow, which is on VOD. Spontaneous is on VOD. If I didn't say that, The Wolf of Snow Hollow is on VOD as well. And this is from a director named Jim Cummings. He made a movie called Thunder Road, which was well received a few years ago, and I honestly, I either didn't watch it, or I watched it and don't remember it, or I started to watch it and then turned it off. I don't remember which. I, what I can tell you is I don't remember very much of it. So either I watched it and I was really indifferent and didn't, like, internalize any of it, or I maybe just was aware that it existed and meant to watch it but didn't watch it. I don't know. I have no memory of that movie, except that I remember the title and I remember what he looks like in it. So... Because uh, the director is also an actor. He's the star of both movies. And from what I'm told, because I don't remember or I didn't see the first one, uh, he plays a very similar character in both. This one I really like. Um, it, there's something really... It has a, it has a sort of Coen Brothers feel. It has a kind of like... Um, uh, almost like a Jim Jarmusch kind of like weird... Like it's sort of like quirky small town characters with a sort of strange energy. Um, but there's something sort of fascinating about the editing. I'm sort of attracted, I think, most of the editing style of the movie. Uh, there's a lot of, so basically the plot is that it's a, a small town sheriff who's like at his wit's end and the town becomes the site of werewolf attacks or what seem like werewolf attacks. Uh, and it's it's a horror comedy, I guess, would be how you would frame it. But I think it's important to note that, like, the horror is, I think, effective. Uh, horror comedy sometimes means, like, oh, it's funny, it's not scary. I think this one is particularly funny and scary. And But there's there's this way that the scenes are edited where I feel like they're, they're almost non-chronological in ways, and they're sort of built around an idea. So there's, like... There'll be like this scene, there's a scene, or there's a, I, guess, I guess it's a sequence really where it's a couple of intercut scenes, but, uh, and it's just, you know, this small town sheriff fighting with the medical examiner, uh, you know, talking to his, uh, his co-workers in, at a, at, at a murder site, uh, basically calling them inept. And then, and then intercut all three of the, all, both the things are intercut with shots of the actual murder. And so rather than put those things in chronological order, they'll be sort of like put into a montage, which just sort of emphasizes the idea of like malfeasance and, and murder. Like murder, like, so you just, you just sort of like get this weird kind of collective feeling of what's happening rather than seeing everything in a very rigid sequence. Uh, and I think that kind of, there's sort of like, there's sort of, yeah, it's almost edited, it's almost idea edited in a way that I think is interesting. Uh, but there's still lots of suspense built up in a lot of the scenes. Uh, the ending, I think, is very suspenseful and has a great kind of series of moments that are tense. Uh, but I just think there's something about the way it's pieced together that makes it, gives it a really interesting energy that is not overly familiar, um, even as someone who's watched a lot of movies. 
uh, and it feels distinct as what it is. I'd like to rewatch this one, actually, to be honest. I haven't, I haven't had the chance to watch it a second time. I'd like to rewatch it, because I feel like there's something... I feel like there's more I could observe from it, but I, I would probably have to revisit it. But what I will say is it's I think it's really effective and interesting, and I was intrigued. So I would really recommend it um, if, you, if you're interested in that. Um, the new, the new, the new version of Rebecca. Interesting. Um, a lot of people hate this. I don't hate it. I actually kind of liked it. Uh, what I will say is, uh, what I will say is, uh, Army Hammer, and Army Hammer's mustard suit. Army Hammer's mustard suit. That's actually, I think that's the sentence. The sentence is Army Hammer's mustard suit. It's delightful. It's um. There's a there's a captivating quality. Uh, I think I was really fascinated reading the reviews to the movie. Uh, how much people really hated Army Hammer in the movie, um, because they felt that he was like bored or disengaged. Uh, and maybe he was, I don't know who he, I mean, I don't know anything about him. Uh, but especially in contrast to Laurence Olivier, who originated the role in the 1940 Hitchcock Rebecca. Um, I mean, Rebecca is really interesting as a Hitchcock movie in part because it's probably the least Hitchcock of his American movies. Well, except maybe for like the Paradine case, but, um, Hitchcock very famously came to the U.S. and made Rebecca. It was his first U.S. film in 1940. One, the only Hitchcock film that ever won Best Picture at the Oscars. That's because it was, well, arguably it's because it was produced by David O. Selznick, who had just produced Gone with the Wind, which won the Oscar for Best Picture in 1939. So the thing is that Rebecca was received, it was, a, it was received as a David O. Selznick film. It was David O. Selznick, the producer's uh, follow-up to Gone with the Wind, which I think is part of how it garnered so much Oscar consideration to win Best Picture. Uh, Hitchcock, notoriously, was not a very strong Oscar, uh, you know, contender in, 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 in virtually every sense. Um, he was nominated for director four times, I believe, never won a competitive Oscar. Uh, there's also no Hitchcock, the only Hitchcock performance, sorry, the only performance by an actor in a Hitchcock film to ever win an Academy Award is, interestingly enough, Interestingly enough, Joan Fontaine in Suspicion, which is not a performance that people would necessarily guess. <laughs> if you gave them that trivia, if you do movie trivia, right, um, what is the only performance in a Hitchcock film ever to win the Oscar? I doubt people would guess Joan Fontaine, um, which is no insult to Joan Fontaine because she's great in Suspicion, although the ending is a, is a nightmare. Um, that's a whole other story. Uh, but anyway, the point being, Hitchcock very famously didn't like Rebecca, and were felt slighted by David Oselznik. Uh, and uh, interestingly, Rebecca inspired Hitchcock's American film style in the sense that after he was screwed over on Rebecca, arguably because David Oselznik basically took him off the movie and changed the ending and <laughs> uh, took control of the footage of the movie, so the Hitchcock didn't have final say over the movie. Uh, the thing is that Hitchcock had, nonetheless, uh, 
Well, so he went on to basically make it so that no one could ever do that to him again, which is why, uh, which is what really kind of defines his Hollywood filmmaking style because he starts to plan everything very, very meticulously in storyboards. And then what he does, which is totally calculated, is he only films what he needs, uh, meaning he only films essentially the shots he intends to include. He doesn't do what's sometimes called coverage. Like he doesn't film... Uh, he doesn't film both sides of the conversation and then film it in a wide shot so you have options. You know, typically directors will give the editor of the film options about how they're going to edit the movie together. Hitchcock didn't do that. Hitchcock was like, this is what we're doing. It's a shot of this. It's a shot here. Then we cut to a shot of this. And so we're just going to film those shots so that you can't take the footage and make it into a different movie. You can only, it only makes sense in the way that he intended it to be made, which is what he did he would just shoot exactly what was on the storyboards and not shoot any coverage so rebecca's like a weird interesting movie in that sense because it really was hitchcock's it inspired this whole interesting thing about him but it also is notoriously a film that he was not fond of uh and it was very much eclipsed by david osalsnick uh in terms of at the time in hindsight most people regale it as a Hitchcock film, uh, which it is. But I think that the thing about the new Rebecca, among other things, is that I feel like it's not gothic. So, uh, you know, the 40, 1940 Rebecca is such a classic Hollywood gothic movie, uh, way, which was very popular at the time. Um, you know, if you look at Hollywood in the 1940s, this, like, uh, this like modern gothic style was very prominent in, especially in women's films. Uh, you have just so many of like movies about women who are afraid their husband are trying to kill them, uh, including multiple Hitchcock films of that sort, Suspicion being another one of them. Uh, it's just like a really, it's, it's, an, it's, it's an interesting moment, uh, but the point being, Rebecca is very much of its moment in 1940. This new version is not aesthetically, it's not, it's not gothic. It's not inspired by the same sort of like stylistic movements as film noir. It's not uh, chiaroscuro lighting. It's not sort of like fog banks and uh, a kind of like, you know, really uh, kind of characteristically bleak or dark visual style. It's not, you know, inspired by German Expressionism, basically. I mean, Hitchcock was very inspired by German Expressionism. In fact, when he made The Lodger... Uh, so the weird thing about Hitchcock's first... Okay. <laughs> Maybe this is too much information, but the thing about when Hitchcock made... So The Lodger, which is the first Hitchcock film that was widely released in the UK, is actually his third film. Uh, the first two had a sort of... and uh, The first two were not released or, or barely released. The film that broke out for Hitchcock in the UK was The Lodger, but like notably, when they were editing The Lodger, they um, they were like concerned that it wasn't British enough, and in fact it looked very German, because Hitchcock was so inspired by German uh, expressionism, which was a, basically a movement in, in, in Germany that was the basis for a lot of Hollywood horror and film noir in the 30s and the 40s. And, you know, Gothic being kind of within that, uh, that sort of, um, sort of, uh, intersectional set of styles in, in Hollywood, right? Uh, anyway, so, but literally when they were releasing The Larger, they added a subtitle that was called 
the story of the London fog, which was this like weird psychological thing where they wanted people to associate the sort of fog banks and the kind of uh, the kind of like dark visual style of the film, which was very German. They wanted to like incorporate that style into a British sensibility. So they tried to like contextualize it in terms of the like notorious London fog. So they tried to make something German very British, which is a fascinating, weird thing that they did. The point being that the 40s, the 19th Rebecca is very inspired by German Expressionism by what was developing in the US in terms of horror cinema, like you know Todd Browning and James Whale, and then also obviously film noir was coming into shape as a style at the time. This Rebecca is none of though, like it just isn't. It's a, it's a very different, it's not, I mean, it's good that it's not a gothic. It's good that it's not trying to be aesthetically, visually in that oeuvre because it would just, why would you do that again? I mean, <laughs> why would you do that again? Um, This is like very bright and kind of, kind of like escapist in a lot of ways. There's something, it's like, it's sort of like a thorny escapist fantasy. Um, it's very colorful. It's uh, it's totally different than the the sort of period Rebecca of 1940. Uh, hens, army, hammers, mustard suit. I mean, I think that, that like that pop of color in and of itself, I feel like greatly distinguishes the two because the 1940 version was very in the spirit of like, obviously it was in black and white, but also the, the chiaroscuro style of like high contrast lighting, very high contrast between shadow and light is, you know, is sort of, is the, the sort of epitome of emphasizing black and white as opposed to vibrant color. So uh, I think this one's so different. I mean, I think I like Army Hammer in it because I think that his character in the 40 version, Laurence Olivier playing this character is kind of almost indicative of like giving the character more, more credit besides the fact that they change elements of the novel to make the character more wholesome, which I guess I won't spoil, but this version is, I haven't read the novel, to be honest, I've only seen the 40 film, but I've heard enough accounts of what changed in the 1940 film from the novel that I believe I understand what happens in the novel, which seems to be more like to this version of the movie, in the sense that the, the Army Hammer slash Lawrence Olivier character is like an asshole. Like, like there's this weird, the 40 version does give him all of this space to like be grand and uh, and to in invest like energy and, and to make us empathize with him by making it Lawrence Olivier. The fact that like as Army Hammer, he's kind of just like a handsome void of a character, like that is actually probably truer and more accurate to who that character is, is that he's sort of like ruthless and empty and selfish and not Olivier. Like that's not, <laughs> there's something about this sort of like the, the blandness and the functionality and the, the sort of transactional nature of the Army Hammer character that I think is appropriate. I think this version of the story, the new, the new, the Ben Wheatley version, the new version, which is on Netflix, by the way, is just, I think, way more acutely aware of the class disparity, the way that, that class, uh, the ability to ascend class is deeply tethered to the choices of the second Mrs. De Winter, um, to the point where it really is a story about a woman who 
is kind of romanticizing this bland kind of creepy guy who is selfish and probably awful, but she's kind of romanticizing him because she needs it to be romantic to make it something that she can that she can accept for herself in order not to be totally adrift and financially destitute, uh, which I think is a more compelling way of framing that than maybe some of the more, some of the other, some of the way that it is a bit, I think he's a bit more sensitive in the 1940 version and there's a bit more of an ability to err on the side of believing his integrity exists in the same way that suspicion had to be altered both rebecca and suspicion were altered to make the husband more better a better human than they were supposed to be initially and i think that this version doesn't quite give into that it kind of lets him be terrible and it makes the choice the worst of two evils in the way that it probably varies pragmatically was or would be for a character in this time period who is in that situation I also really like the Kristen Scott Thomas. I don't know if that, any of that was helpful. Um, I also really like the Kristen Scott Thomas, Mrs. Danvers. I think it's really interesting. I mean, uh, Mrs. Danvers is a quintessential lesbian icon. Um, but I have to say, you know, watching this, I'm kind of... I, it emphasizes to me what is really false about the 1940 version. In the 1940 version, Mrs. Danvers is batty and kind of, you know, obsessive and, like, fawning over negligee and looking, like, really er kind of erratic and and unhinged and seeming un ungrounded in her obsession with the first Mrs. De Winter, uh, Rebecca. And I think that that, there, that is part of her iconography like is this kind of very gay camp kind of obsession of being all like wide-eyed and like you know like like uh, stroking the the nightgown and looking just like so obsessive and so it's so over the top it's part of why people love that character and like what the very campy queer attraction is to her um however uh, that's not like a very sensitive or sensible portrayal of of a queer woman, right? Like that's not that's not really what it is. I mean, that's not it's not. There's nothing true to life about it, which is which is fine. It doesn't necessarily have to be. But this version of Mrs. Danvers is like a smart person who has motivations, and it's like she and Rebecca both kind of understood that. Uh, Maxim de Winter is like a turd and they like they were both living off of him he has all of this money and he's a loser but they are both in a position where they are financially dependent on him and and it's a it's a very queer and very feminist version of that character that has a she's like a real human being with ideas and motivations and the choices that she makes reflect her financial need and her personal beliefs within a system that she is 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 sort of morally and ethically uh, challenging. And it gives her so much more integrity and depth of character as opposed to just being this like sort of like wide-eyed, obsessive, you know, caricature um, that I have to say I like, I kind of like more. So anyway, I like the new Rebecca. I think that, I think that there's something 
interesting and, and I think more cynical than people are maybe reacting to about it. And I think a little bit of, of it is the sort of illusionary sense of like um, anything that is classic, quote unquote classic, must be better. I'm not really arguing that one's better than the other, but like this sort of like weird imperative to just insist that everything that has age has more value. It's not, I mean, they're both interesting films and I think that there's qualities that make both of them interesting. They do very different things. Uh, and I like this version. I would recommend this version. Uh, I also think Ben Wheatley has a really good, uh, I think most of this is very pretty and bright and kind of like picturesque, but I also think there's these very, there are very surreal elements, which are the moments that are most visually interesting to me, um, but which sort of speak to the underlying themes of the movie, which is that it's a woman entering into a world that is very picturesque, but, but which has this underlying surrealism, which is bleak and terrifying. So uh, I didn't mean to talk about that movie as much as I did, but I am a defender of the new Rebecca, and I think it's pretty good. I don't know if it's, I don't know comparatively how to equate it to the earlier version, but they're, I think they're both really good. Um, this next one is one of my favorite movies, one of my favorite horror movies, but I have a, a million caveats that I want to give to it. So uh, I loved Bad Hair, Justin Simeon's movie on Hulu. Um... I don't, I didn't, I honestly didn't know much about Justin Simeon. I also didn't know, uh, I had, I have not seen the, I have not seen Dear White People, the movie. Uh, so this was, I guess, the first exposure I had to him. But I literally, I watched the first roughly 30 minutes and I immediately Googled Justin Simeon plus gay. Because I was like, there is no effing way that this is not made by a gay man. And I was correct. Uh, it is... It's the gayest horror movie of 2020, I think, by a surefire mile. Um, and not because of gay characters, which is not, to me, not. When I say something is gay, I hardly ever mean that there's gay characters in it. When I say something is gay, I mean, like, it's the sensibility is gay. And it's, like, Kelly Rowland as a Janet Jackson-esque New Jack Swing singer uh, doing this, like, late 80s, early 90s style music video. Uh, plus uh, Vanessa Williams as a former beauty queen turned, like, cutting CEO, plus uh, Lena Waithe and Nicole Byer and, like, so many character actors that are, that gay people love. Uh, there's just so, it was just, it was so gay. It's a gay, gay, gay movie. In the best sense, it's also incredibly campy in a very, acute way not in like a not in my opinion not in a silly way in a very calculated and intense way um and the the reference i would give there is uh in fact if you saw in fabric last year which is about uh a dress that like curses people and and, and kills them uh this is sort of like i it feels like in so it feels like a sort of it's like in fabric but with hair and set in like 1980s black music television. I think it's fantastic. I mean, the sensibility is 100% my sensibility. I was so blown away by it. I thought it was so funny and clever and interesting and scary. And the tone that it strikes, which is so between everything that I love in terms of being funny and scary and campy and, you know, super gay. Uh, it was, it was great. I love this movie. Um, 
the caveat I have is that I have seen mixed reaction online from uh, from Black women in terms of the the way that it represents Black women's relationship to hair. Uh, and that's just the thing that I have like no place to address. So uh, I haven't seen a universal like outcry against the movie. So I don't think it's necessarily that it's just a movie that's like a it's just bad and maybe should not be watched. I don't think that I, I don't know. I might be wrong, but I haven't seen that kind of reaction. I've just seen a conversation happening, and I've seen some people who sort of ardently feel that. Uh, it is not really a movie about black women's hair that comes from a black woman's perspective, which makes sense to me because from the from the mo from the word go, I immediately was like, "This is a gay movie. This this is a gay movie. This is such a gay movie." Uh, and so, if 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 I'm when I'm there's a HuffPost article that I think outlines. I know I think there's a HuffPost article that outlines the kind of critique of the movie from someone who saw it at, I think, Sundance, who's a Black woman uh, film critic. Uh, when, when I read her article, it makes sense to me because to me it is very much a gay man's movie. And I am... I can't really account for other for the for any other perspective than that. But like, uh, I would just give the caveat that that exists, and maybe that's worth research. I mean, uh, not maybe that is worth researching and thinking about. Um, and I'm still sort of like curious and reading points of view on the movie, especially from Black women critics, as to that issue because it makes sense to me. It's a very, to me it's, it is a gay man's movie, and I I do. Gay men's campy attachment to films about women is a very complicated thing um, because it is almost always driven by a an affectionate attachment and a tribute in a way, in a sense. Uh, but it also doesn't necessarily benefit the women at hand. So Mrs. Danvers is actually an example of this, but also like if you think about Faye Dunaway in Mommy Dearest, like, Mommy Dearest, even though it's a camp classic among, largely among gay men, um, it's not a great legacy for Joan Crawford. Uh, it's not a great legacy for Faye Dunaway, who's a two-time Oscar-winning classic actress. Uh, you know, uh, it kind of almost destroyed her career, and, uh, it doesn't actually do anything for the women who are being kind of... I believe that camp is affectionate and it is not parody it's not mockery it's actually very much about a love for something and i think i think i think the camp reaction to uh to mommy dearest is sincere and and it's kind of love and affection for it uh but i do think it's like maybe at the expense of actual women's uh legacies and careers and i think likewise like showgirls for example did not do anyone any favors elizabeth berkeley very famously like kind of never worked again um and was you know her like her experience of the movie is so separate from the kind of camp culture around the movie uh and i imagine that's because she it was traumatic and like it kind of ruined her career and it maybe is embarrassing and the way that camp works as a historical cultural practice which is very complicated uh, and many people have written about, and I'm still reading about, and trying to figure out how to explain best. Uh, 
it's not i don't know that it is i don't know that it works for everyone so it's maybe the case that like bad hair is just is really kind of ultimately a gay man's movie about black women and maybe that's an issue i don't know what i can say is watching it i love watching it and uh and also i'm still kind of like i'm sure there will be articles and more things written about it so i'm going to keep reading about it uh but just from my own limited perspective i had truly a great time watching it so um i would recommend it but i'd also just like invite everyone to please be paying attention to what other conversations are happening uh, and what other perspectives there are so that we can all like continue to learn about things um okay there's this is the last one the last one is his house which is fucking perfect his house which is on netflix it was released on netflix october 30th i watched it on halloween over Zoom with some friends, and I fucking was terrified, and I cried, and I have told everyone, I was like, I don't want to do a Zoom. I only want to Zoom watch movies that I don't care about, that are probably, like, silly, and I don't, like, I don't want to be on camera crying or jumping, or, that's just not fun for me. Uh, and like his house was, it was exactly all those things. I think it's very scary. I think this, the, the way that the scares are constructed in the movie are, there's one or two that I won't spoil that I, I thought about them all day and the next day. And it's not that it's, it's not, it's not, um, it, when I say scary, I mean, keep in mind, my favorite horror movie of all time is Jack Clayton's The Innocence. So by scary, I mean like unnerving visually simple unnerving under your skin scary i don't do uh bloody gory mess i mean like there's like one subtle camera movement that reveals something and and it's and it just captivates you that to me is like quintessential horror and this movie does what i consider to be quintessential horror and there's one or two things that it does that i won't spoil I just keep thinking about, I just still think about like the, this one choice of, you know, how information comes across visually. And it just, every time I think about it, it just literally makes me shiver. And it's just a fucking perfect movie. It's a, it's a perfect horror movie. And it, of course, it's, it's about a couple who comes to London from Sudan and they are basically forced to live in, um, this public housing option while the government of London is hearing their case for, I guess, for asylum status from Sudan. And they have to stay in this house and they can't go anywhere because they're still being like monitored before they can be admitted into the UK. Uh, and they are in this house, which is like this house where probably many immigrants and refugees have lived uh, at some point, uh, it just, there's just ghosts in it. There's just, right, there's like, liter there's literal and figurative. There's sort of equal here. It's a very metaphorical movie, uh, but also one that has a, a real tangible stakes to the, the metaphor. Uh, but it, there's just, there's just this sort of like legacy of, of, trauma in this house and also a legacy of trauma in their experience getting to London from Sudan and that unfolds just in, in impeccable ways there's a couple things this movie does that I think are not totally spoilers that I can say like for one they 
there's very often a sound uh, that is off screen um, that either we never find out the source for, or there's a very long time delay between when we hear the sound and when we see the source, which is a very kind of, you know, the idea of um, synchronous sound as opposed to asynchronous sound, the idea that, uh, you know, you hear a frog, you see a frog, you hear, a, you know, you hear uh, whatever, you hear a cow, you see a cow, you, you know, that like the idea that your brain is able to comfortably associate the sound to the image. Um, the one thing that they do that's very unnerving is they often have a sound and then a long delay before we find out what made the sound or possibly no indication of what made the sound, which is very scary. And there's also a couple of times where, uh, and this is, I, I don't think this is a spoiler because it's not telling you anything, but there are some moments where the camera takes on sort of an anthropomorphic quality. The, the thing, one thing about uh, The Shining, which is the classic ghost story, is that people talk about The Shining as having an anthropomorphic camera, meaning that the camera feels almost sentient, where it, you know, it sort of feels like it's just uh, tracking along behind Danny on the bike, but then weirdly it starts to, like, stay behind him, or then he, like, turns out of the frame, and the camera is just still very slowly pacing. It's not... Um, there's a sort of sense that the camera isn't tethered to the character. The, the, the camera has agency. And this movie uses that in some ways that I think are... Uh, I'm thinking of a particular way, but I don't want to spoil it. But but it uses that in some ways that I think are very terrifying. And it's an emotional movie. It's a, It completely integ like fully integrates the supernatural, which is excellently executed, with the character drama, which is also excellently executed. And... Um, it's easily one of my favorite horror movies to come out this year. Uh, this and Wolf House are like 10 out of 10 movies. Um, they're also very difficult movies. Um, for something a little bit lighter, uh, definitely uh, Spontaneous is about death, but Spontaneous is funny. Wolf of Snow Hollow is kind of funny. Uh, and also um, Vampires vs. Brooklyn is very light. So that's like the, the sort of scale of depression. Vampires versus Brooklyn is nice, and then we sort of slide down to like Spontaneous and Wolf of Snow Hollow, which are nice but a little grim, and then Wolf House and his house. I didn't need to make them both house. They're both house. They both end in house. Uh, Wolf House, the Wolf House and his house are like brilliant, perfect, but like you can only, you will need to like take a long nap after because you'll be very affected. I hope those recommendations help. I don't know. Um, anyway, so if you made it all the way to the end, thank you so much for uh, doing that. That's lovely of you. And if you'd like to email me any uh, anything, if you watch any of these movies, uh, you can email me at uh, gayforhorror at gmail.com. Let me know what you thought of some of these movies. Uh, and um, at the end of every episode, I have to let you know that it is, uh, it is true that we do recruit and we do convert. So you are totally gay now. Bye. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>